One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Welcome to History Becomes Her, a mashable podcast about women making history right now and the women who paved the way for them. I'm your host, Rachel Thompson, senior reporter at Mashable. Jess Phillips is a member of parliament who isn't afraid to speak her mind. When she's not standing up in the House of Commons calling out the Prime Minister for playing bully boy games during Brexit votes, she's shedding light on the reality of being a woman in politics. That reality is pretty terrifying. She receives death and rape threats nearly every single day of her life and one night received 600 rape threats in one night. She has panic alarms installed in her home and office, and in 2016, Philip's friend, the MP Joe Cox, was assassinated by a far-right terrorist in her constituency. We spoke to Philip's about Joe Cox and the women who've inspired her. I'm Jess Phillips, and I'm the Labour MP for Birmingham Yardley and the author of some books. One question that we ask every guest on the podcast is... Is there a particular activist from history or even from the present day who's had an effect on you? Um, I mean, there's so many is uh, the thing. And it's uh, it's almost impossible to pick. But if I had to uh, pick anyone, recently I wrote the foreword to the re-release uh, of Emmeline Pankhurst's autobiography. And um, it was 100 years of suffrage and there's a huge amount. We unveiled the statue in London. There was a huge amount of activism that went on in 2018 in that year. And I was asked to do the to, to do the forward, and so in rereading the book, which I haven't read since I don't know, like nineteen ninety three, in rereading the book, I just was once again just fell totally in love with the character of Annie Kenny. Mm. So Annie Kenny was a suffragette from Oldham, oh, wow. and she was a mill worker, and she shines in Emmeline Pankhurst's book. Now Emmeline Pankhurst is not. Uh, would not be my natural bedfellow either politically or you know aside from the obvious Mm. brilliance of the suffragette movement but and also just her whole demeanor she's a woman of means she's a not that I'm not a woman of means now but you know I didn't Mm. grow up with people like Emmeline Pankhurst I grew up with working class activism yeah Um, and Annie Kenny is the sort of working class hero activist um, in that just sings through. But what I absolutely love about the way that she is characterised in uh, Emmeline Pankhurst's autobiography is that she's she's strident, she's clever, she's funny, she's 
I mean, she's constantly just going around having a pop at Winston Churchill. The irreverence to Winston Churchill <laughs> in uh, the autobiography is when you work somewhere that is so reverent towards somebody and they are ev- almost mm. every day. There isn't a day passes where I work in Parliament where somebody doesn't liken some great noble thing to Churchill. And then to read about this, you know, young mm. woman from Oldham basically following him around with a bell, telling him he was wrong. <laughs> it's just, I mean, absolutely. Oh my you God. know, I, I find her totally inspiring. Um, uh, as a character, but she was the organizer. It's very much uh, that out of time, you know, she would have ended up as the, you know, the leader of the trade union congress. Now she was an organizer. She got stuff done. She didn't just go out on the campaigns and mm. get the uh, the profile. She was there stuff in envelopes she was there in the bits of the revolution that are boring mm. and so yeah Annie Kenny is uh, the woman who I would always uh, in the suffrage movement and she's 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 partly forgotten actually yeah. in the in the movement um, I think more so more people have heard about her recently there was a big fundraising mm. uh, effort to get a statue of her put in Oldham uh, which we all took part in so there is now a statue of Annie oh, Kenny amazing. in Oldham but that was only you know last year mm. and everybody knows the Pankhursts and they have formed mm. so much part of popular culture uh, even in comedy and everything but Annie Kenny is to me you know she's the one who you would have gone out folded loads of her envelopes with gone out thrown a few rocks through people's doors harangued Churchill and then gone down the pub and had a laugh with her (laughs) I mean she sounds iconic yeah she's amazing (laughs) and in the book you write and I think this quote so striking um every single day of my working life people try to threaten me for speaking up and if I speak out and this is a a quote uh, if I speak out against the abuse of women at work or online people literally threaten to rape me I have had people threaten to kill me threaten to kill my children I've been sent creepy messages from people saying that they are following me um how do you even begin to kind of deal with that and and does it scare you it does scare me um i have moments where it's really scary the the worst thing actually isn't the fear that i feel and sometimes i have you know sort of bone crushing fear um but that doesn't worry me it's the second guessing mm. that you have to do i am naturally a tactile person i like to like chat with people on the tube the people of london are not ready for me <laughs> I, I think. um and i like to I like to give people a cuddle. So at all the book events mm. that I've been doing, people will come up and you'll be signing their books and I'll have to have these security guards stood near me and they must loathe me, these security guards, mm. because I just le- leap round the table and start <laughs> giving everyone a cuddle. And I hate that I have to pause for thought and assess a person mm. and that I can't have good faith. And that is when you have to do, imagine how many people you interact with a day. Now imagine how many people I interact with in a day. Mm. When you have to, it's very, very tiring and that just makes me feel very, very sad. Um, so the fear is not the worst part of it. But sometimes I am scared. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't realise until actually this morning, as I was leaving Birmingham, on the school run, I was having a cup of coffee with one of my mates, Jess. And um, her and I had been in London together last week. And we got on a tube. And uh, I was just about to get the bus this morning and she was just like, can you get a taxi? And I said, it's all right. It'd just be quicker to get on the bus. Mm. 
And she said, oh, I hated being on the tube with you last week. I felt really anxious that people were near you. Really? And I was like, really? Oh, I was absolutely fine. I was chatting with people. <laughs> they hated me, no doubt about it, really? for the chit-chat. Um, <laughs> but um, I was like, oh, gosh, no, you mustn't. So the people around me, and my son mentioned to me this weekend that maybe he wouldn't be worried about things if I stopped, uh, you know, telling people that people were trying to kill me. <laughs> um <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, you you learn to live with it like anything, like anybody who has any daily grind, mm. um, you learn to live with it and try and live as normal a life as possible. You talk about how fear is used and manipulated to make us think twice about about speaking up. How did you move past that that fear? Mm. Um, is it something that you work on kind of every day? Yeah, I mean, I work on it every day, but I actually, and this is maybe uh, some sort of terrible deficiency, um, I actually actually quite like the feeling of being frightened um and so I say in the mm. book that for me sometimes it is well often times it is adrenaline and it, I use that adrenaline and fuel to literally push me forwards mm. if I'm scared of something then I think that what I'm standing up for is right mm. if it is scaring me there's a problem because I don't really scare that easy. Yeah. So if I'm feeling anxious or frightened, I get nervous about, although much, much less so nowadays, mm. I don't really feel sort of nerves about doing certain things anymore. Mm. And maybe that's because I live my whole life at a permanent mm. level of uh, anxiety and adrenaline. But I think that if somebody is frightening you, there is something wrong Mm. And we should use that as an indicator, like pain is an indicator that you should speak to a doctor. Yeah. That fear is an indicator that you should, that you're doing something right and that you should keep on going. If people are having to scare you off, um, then you're probably onto something. Mm. But I understand that, that that comes with the need for massive risk assessment and so a lot of the book is not me going around just basically saying walk up to Donald Trump and tell him what you think sort of thing it's not like <laughs> you know you almost certainly will be wrestled to the ground by a security Definitely. force um but it is about you know weighing up the risks and planning actions and not steaming in mm. because that you need you need to take on board that risk that comes with feeling scared mm. but not let it stop you you had a panic room installed in your in your constituency office yes and you've got and you write i think it's on the very p first page of the book you you write about having this panic alarm next to your bed that mm -hmm. you're worried that you're gonna accidentally whack in <laughs> in the night um that i am genuinely scared of false, <laughs> I would be. false alarm it's amazing it's a british uh, condition to be scared of a false alarm mm. and uh so you know if you're unless basically you've got like an arterial bleed you won't go to the doctors yeah, and exactly. it's, I, I, moments in A&E when you sit there and you think I really hope there's something desperately wrong with me because I don't want to have wasted anybody's time I, what a ridiculous <laughs> way to think you know is that the reality of of life as a political figure in this day and age or do you think the fact that you're a woman plays a role in the amount of abuse that you get? It is and always has been an element of political life. Violence mm -hmm. against politicians is not necessarily a new thing. It has always existed. If we look back in the 80s, the Irish Troubles and the bomb attacks on the Brighton mm -hmm. Hotel when Margaret Thatcher was staying uh, is one example. There are members of parliament who were stabbed and attacked over the Iraq issue. And lovely Stephen Timms, I can't think of anyone you'd least want to harm. Mm. He's such a nice man. Um, and 
so it has always been a feature mm. of political life. At the moment, it is just wall to wall. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. One, there are more women mm. and women and people of uh, colour. So there's many more black MPs, many more Asian MPs. They're much more likely to um, face vitriol mm. and hatred. And that is partly because power doesn't give itself up very easily. Mm. And if somebody else is doing well, for some people that feels like they're losing out, that that is directly in challenge to their own power as other people get more powerful who classically didn't have power. Mm. That that alarmed lots of people. And so the rhetoric around that is very vitriolic. And so that you're much... And women mm. are... If you're a woman of colour, you're much more likely to get the worst abuses if, or if you're a Jewish woman. Mm. Um, and similarly... Uh, with uh, actually men, um, black and Asian men and Jewish men. But uh, it's just wall to wall because the threats, you don't know, you no longer have to put a stamp on a threat. Mm. Um, It's much cheaper to threaten people. And there are, you know, like when somebody sent you a message and then you're trying to find it and Mm. there's like 900 platforms you've got to look on to see if they've sent you that message on. Is it on Instagram? Is it on Twitter? Is it on Facebook? Was it just your phone? Was it WhatsApp? (laughs) It's just, you know, there are so many avenues now to attack. Um, And and you you have to be publicly available as a member of parliament. There's no way around that and nor Mm. should there be. And so... We're we're inevitably going to Mm. be the people who face the worst vitriol. Your friend, the MP Joe Cox, was assassinated by a far-right terrorist in her hometown because of her willingness to to speak up about the plight of refugees and multicultural communities. Mm -hmm. And there's an incredibly moving section in the book where you say that to say that you are willing to die for your cause is is using the masculine language of, of war employed to motivate soldiers on a battlefield. And you write that if Joe Cox had been asked if she were willing to die for what she believed in, it's likely that she would have thought about her children and loved ones and said no. And there's a paragraph in the book that reduced me to tears. It's You talk about the day that you, you get on a train to commemorate Joe Cox and your son asked you not to go and, and asked you if it was worth it. Um, how did you respond to him that day? And is it worth it? I mean, the trouble is it's not worth dying for and nobody should be asked to 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 die but keeping silent about things that are wrong in the world would is a death of sorts and mm. i suppose one of the uh, main case studies in the book is around both sort of the situation with joe but also uh, the journalist daphne carana galazia who was murdered um who uh, and she was uncovering uh, lots of stuff around the maltese government and her son very, very clearly said to me, and it's interesting to hear it from her son's perspective mm. when thinking about how my own sons feel about it. And she had, she, like me, she was the mother of sons. He said that he would never have asked her to stop mm. the doing the uncovering. She would, he would never have asked her to stop writing or speaking about the things that she w- she would have wanted because that would have been a death. And what I said to my son on that day is, is the trouble is it is worth it. And that is because I can assess Mm. the value versus the risk. Now, the risk for me, although I have got used to it, is incredibly high. There Mm. is a high risk, but the value is much, much higher. The value of me having that platform, Parliament is like a loud hailer. 
the things I say in Parliament, I've been saying them down the pub and no one was paying the blindest bit of notice for the many decades. Um, and the idea that ideas and liberations can come from people being brave and speaking up and speaking up on behalf of the people who have no voice in their constituencies, it, it isn't worth dying for because I don't believe anything is worth dying for. I, you know, if somebody said to me, you know, are your kids worth dying for? It is, it is nonsense rhetoric. It doesn't mean anything. And you're never, ever actually going to have to test it. No. Um, and, but the, the benefits massively, massively outweigh the risk. And the risk can be managed, but the benefit can't be managed. You know, that it mm. is infinite. And if people feel scared, and so don't do it, it that the benefit will just die out and the same people protecting the same old institutions will always continue to rule. Mm. And so, yeah, the benefit always... And so what I said to him was, the trouble is, is it is worth it. Boris Johnson said that the best way to honour Joe Cox's memory was to get Brexit done. I want to ask you about how you think Joe Cox should be remembered. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not entirely sure that um, he spoke for her in that moment. I, I mean, I don't want to do what the Prime Minister did. I don't want to put words in my friend's mouth. Mm. I don't want to assume a position that she would be taking now because she is gone mm. and she deserves to be remembered for her life. Not, And people do it all the time with any dead politician like there was loads of talk about how Margaret Thatcher would have voted in the referendum and Churchill how <laughs> Churchill would have voted in the referendum and it's just like this is ridiculous mm. no but what I know of Joe, I uh, and of her campaigning the last time I ever saw her was just I mean it was the it was less than 24 hours before she was killed and um I was at her house and she gave me a cuddle and we were we were we were leaving London to go back to campaign in the referendum. And she told me she was frightened, not for her life. She was mm. frightened of the outcome. Both she and I represented working class seats that went on to vote leave. So mm. and she gave me a cuddle and she said, you know, I'll see you on see you on the flip side sort of thing. But she was like, I am worried about this. Um, and still she kept her position of being one of the main faces of the Remain campaign throughout that election, even though she would have been facing a different uh, experience back in Batley. And so I just definitely know that Boris Johnson's words, whilst I'm not going to say what she would be doing now, how she would be voting now, because I think sh she deserves to rest in peace. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm fairly certain he's wrong to do it. Uh, and wrong in what he said. Um, the way I want her to be remembered, funnily enough, me and her family often talk about this, uh, and I, my children are growing up with her children. I, you know, I'm still very, very much part of the life of Jo Cox, and partially, not just because I love their, her family and mm -hmm. I love her children, um, because it's comforting to carry on and, and be part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, but one of the things that I found really difficult when she died was the sort of beatification of her mm. as a flawless character. Now, Joe was brilliant and brave 
and tiny, this tiny little brave thing. She, and she moved like an imp. Like you, if you were talking to her, it, well, you would get like seasickness because she would like move all the time. Um, and she she was amazingly strong on matters, really big matters of war and peace. She knew her stuff and she was not willing to be sidelined in her opinion because people constantly underestimated her because she was a small, mm. tiny, pretty woman from Yorkshire. And and I want I would want her to be remembered as a consensus builder who cared much more about the outcome than she did about any position uh, and that she would work really hard to make sure that there was a consensus built regardless of who with but i also i also want people to know that she wasn't perfect mm. that and there's this amazing incident i had with her it was uh during the high heels at work campaign <laughs> there was a woman who was yes. sent home from work for not wearing high heels and joe rang me and i was at work and i didn't answer mm. and so she left and this was classic she left like a sort of 10 minute garbled voicemail message <laughs> on my phone and now i wish that i still had it now oh, no. um and it was like oh my god jess have you heard about this this woman right what we're going to do is we're all going to uh, go to work on monday we're going to turn up i'm going to ring loads of lobby journalists uh, mm. women from the lobby and uh, i'm going to get all the women mp's and we're all going to go um, we're all going to wear flat shoes which would not have been uh, i'm currently wearing air force and i'm about to go to parliament <laughs> uh, <laughs> air force one night trainers i always wear flat trainers so for me it wasn't going to be much of a but joe because she was little right. she always wore massive heels in Parliament and um, I always used to think Joe, cut yourself some slack wear, wear flat shoes yeah definitely um, she was like we're going to do this we're going to have a photo call it's going to be and, and then she sent me another one saying I've spoken to like Laura Koonsberg I've dropped her a message like there's this whole planning going on via my voicemail And but the first message I actually picked up was because it was the third message and so it was the most recent right. when I actually picked them up was like oh Jess I've just realised we're not actually in Parliament on Monday forget everything that I've just said <laughs> So, you know, these were, she was, she would steamroll her into mm. something because she had such a big heart and she was so passionate. But often, that. often it was just like, <laughs> calm down, Joe, for a second. Let's just think about this. Um, and, and, you know, Brenda and her husband will talk about how, you know, mm. she nearly lost one of the kids in the Thames because they lived on a boat. Um, and, <laughs> you know, the, the humanity of her mm. to me is the way that I, want to remember her um the humanity of the mistakes that she sometimes made yeah as well i love that mm. that's beautifully put <laughs> in the book you write about daphne Corana galicia a maltese journalist and anti-corruption activist who spent her entire career uncovering the wrongdoing and corruption of the maltese government and we've talked about the cost of speaking out she was killed in 2017 mm. when a bomb was planted under her car and what can we learn from her story? And, and can you tell me a bit about what she achieved? I mean, I think that maybe most of the world had never heard of her prior mm. to um, her death, which immediately, along with a number of other cases um, in the past 10 years, of violence against journalists mm. and the threat all of us expect our news literally like we and we we no longer expect to pay for it anymore yeah. either we expect to turn on the telly and i remember when i was a kid like the again the beatification of people like kate Adie there in beirut and mm -hmm. uh you know the amount of risk actually to speak truth to power the biggest group of people 
who do that actually mm. in in that most people would understand are news journalists people who are out there reporting mm. on um really dangerous situations but what daphne um was doing about this little corner of the world that we don't necessarily think about or know much about is um she was basically uncovering corruptions of the Maltese government around... So Malta is part of the European Union. And so access to the European Union, for example, for businesses and things is... A, is although we don't seem to recognise it in Britain at the moment, <laughs> it is not. a vitally important thing for mm. lots of countries. Uh, and so there have been uncovered a number of different um, schemes and scams around buying passports. Mm. Um, so people essentially being able through huge sums of money access into European markets through yeah. uh, buying passports in Malta which uh, became a huge news story that was that came from mm. her work as an investigative journalist also the the Panama papers which uh, revealed thousands and thousands and thousands of of, country, of people uh, in countries all over the world were basically breaking tax laws and hiding mm. money, including it, it touched here in the UK and, and David Cameron had some questions to answer when the Panama Papers were leaked. And f actually, one of the first contacts, the first people to ever look into it was this woman writing her her blog in Malta, this sort of... So she she was a proper freedom fighter. She was... And she had all her life faced threats of retribution. I think, unfortunately, and I had no idea this was the case until I was speaking to her son, mm -hmm. that when, if you're in the middle of court proceedings, and she was in the middle of, I think, something like up to 30 court proceedings wow. when she died, your family inherit those court proceedings. Oh, my God. Um, and so she, but the court proceedings were being, had been used as a sort of merry-go-round mm. throughout her entire journalistic life to try and silence her. And she would just keep on turning up to court and she would keep on going. She is a fascinating woman to read about, mm. about how much somebody can put up with and keep on going. But we're still nowhere near the end of the story mm. of Daphne Karana Galizia. Um, but she is a woman who deserved to have been heralded in her lifetime and only in her death does the whole world recognise what it takes to really speak truth to power and keep going. And there's another activist that you that you mention in the book as well, Cara Sanquest, mm -hmm. who was a student at Trinity College Dublin, where she and her friends started a, an activist group to change abortion laws after Savita Halapanava died in a Galway hospital after her abortion request was refused. What can we learn from Cara's campaigning? I mean, Cara, I could read you a text message that Cara sent to me. I'm going to read it <laughs> Please to you do. after she read the book. Uh, where is it? Let's find it. Cara, what people could learn from Cara is that she is a total legend to me. But this is what she, th this is her assessment of the book. And she says, okay, so I saved reading the book for my flight back to Cork, which I'm currently on. Oh my God. I thought you interviewed about 5 million people and I probably wasn't going to be in it. You're so kind, including me and lifting up our campaign. And I'm in total shock to be honest. Uh, everyone else in there is seriously impressive and I can't believe you put me in the same book as them. That is uh, so, so sweet. Cara is a force of nature 
a campaigning force of nature. And she doesn't necessarily come from a campaigning background. Mm. She was touched by a story, the story of Savita, and she felt it very personally, not just as a woman, but as an Irish citizen, that the eyes of the world could see Mm. that a woman's life has no value in the country that she loves. So she's Irish, and the idea for lots of Irish people, you know, lots of my family included, the idea of home and the loyalty to home of Ireland is very deep and the pride in Ireland is very, very deep. And she wanted to be proud of her country, um, And but she is an absolute masterclass in starting a campaign and three people turning up. Mm. And there were other campaigns going on at the same time, but her specifically at Trinity College Dublin, she recognised that Trinity has a certain cachet Mm. and that something, some campaign happening at Trinity College in Dublin would potentially catch the headlines. Mm. Uh, And so she put up flyers and, you know, and it is illegal. It it was illegal then in Ireland. Um, And there had been a court case uh, against previous action at Trinity by Mm. activists in this. And so it had sort of pushed any dissent underground. Again, Mm. court cases are often used to silence people. Um, And... um... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And so, yeah, the, she basically tried to hold a meeting and three people turned up. Wow. And she didn't give up. And so they did it again. They were they asked for people to meet up with them. They were going to march down to the Eructus, which is the name of the parliament in Dublin. And the next time, six people turn up. Mm. And then the next time, 20 people turn up. And Cara is an absolute masterclass in wanting to change something that seems totally unchangeable and Mm. has previously when people have tried to change it been squashed but just to keep on going but I suppose Cara's story in the book uh, the chapter that I use it in is about how to grab attention how to tell Mm. a story the the idea of storytelling as good campaigning is very very important and I just challenge anyone to watch any of the the videos that were made um, 
by the Home to Vote campaign, which asked people to travel back to Ireland. Again, this idea of home being so important to people mm. in Ireland and not just weep. They are... The, they, they, what they understood about that campaign is that every person who travelled back to Ireland mm. to vote in that referendum, especially those which Cara was sort of uh, part of the campaign here in the in uh, the mainland UK, um, that that was the same journey that those women had had to go on. Yeah. And so the the symbolism of people mm. getting on a plane, getting on a boat, getting on a train to go and do something that the other way around were sort of lonely, frightened, vulnerable women had had to do that same journey to be able to have a right that we take for granted in this country. Definitely. And that is just... And she never stopped for a second... And the reason she is shocked that she is in the book is because she never stopped for a second after that campaign was done. She never, she didn't rest even for one day mm. to celebrate. She immediately started the campaign to uh, to get that law change in Northern Ireland. Yeah, but it's Cara Sanquest who has been behind yeah. so much of the work in Parliament to get that done. So she is just a total legend to me. But she doesn't think it at all. Well. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. <laughs> she's just, I mean, she's just amazing. And she's a proper laugh. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, those home to vote videos, I honestly was, I mean, I told you earlier, your book had me in <laughs> sobbing at my desk. Those videos, I was a wreck. Oh my, my, my family is Northern Irish. Yeah, and I, yeah. And so I, I was just like, oh, I can't. I was just like, yeah. I need to go and hide in the bathroom. And just like on that day. Just everybody, like, mm. just on the day of the vote or the day before the vote, just everybody telling their stories on social media. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm just about to get on a plane in Japan and yeah. I'm going to do this for the women of Northern Ireland. It was just so uplifting. And while the whole world falls backwards and feels like it's regressing, this corner of the world, this small corner of the world, which had always been seen mm. as being conservative and not progressive, was taking a leap forward. Mm. And they were doing it with the whole world watching them. I mean, I remember my uh, constituency office is um it's near the airport mm. in Birmingham yes. and uh, so we were like you know putting out anyone need a lift and we were like yeah. doing sh shuttles <laughs> along the Coventry Road to get that. people to the airport because there's a huge Irish population in Birmingham. Mm. I think there's a chapter in your book where you say you don't have to be exceptional to speak truth to power mm -hmm. and you write that every single person that you interviewed in the book laughed when you asked them if they were brave yeah. and they and they leaned on their their ordinariness. Um, what would you say to someone who perhaps lacks confidence confidence or doesn't feel that they're remarkable enough to to speak truth to power I mean I, I I mean I would absolutely say that nobody thinks that they have the confidence to do it mm. until they're in a situation where somebody needs to step up yeah. um, whether that's a terribly tragic situation um, or like Cara they can just look around and see that the system isn't fair. There's all sorts of mm. systems failures. But Cara's text message to me, it speaks volumes that none of these people consider themselves to be brave or exceptional. Mm. And most people who think that they lack the confidence, they're probably right that they do lack the confidence. Mm. And they'll look at people like me shouting up on the TV and 
feeling no reverence about having a pop at the Prime Minister and they all think that I am like just born confident and that's that's not true that's what we do to ourselves to basically create we love hierarchies we feel comfortable uh, I don't know whether it's a British thing I imagine it's just a human thing we feel safe in our lanes we feel safe in a hierarchy and so people who would have been in my class at primary school mm. who would have been in my class at secondary school who know have known me decades will will suddenly put me as other to them even though there is absolutely nothing mm. that that separates us yeah. in our um opportunity to speak up um or opportunity to take on a campaign and I think it's just a it's a massively important message mm. that if you were to ever sit and chat with Doreen Lawrence, who is now one of the most iconic campaigners of my generation mm. and genuinely got results in trying to change the culture of a racist police forces across the UK, not just here in London, mm. but across the UK, that if you were to talk to her, you would recognise that she feels nervous and she feels ordinary and mm. she feels worried about standing up and speaking and that you would never, you would never describe her as a confident person. Yeah. You you know, like the person who's taking up, I mean, I, you, I am a bit of a show-off, there's no two ways about that. <laughs> but, you know, like the idea of the person who holds court in the pub. Mm. Yeah. None of the people in my book are the, those people. That's... None of them are naturally confident, mm. and and lots of them are uh, have been very. Their confidence has been quite badly damaged, if anything, by wow. the, uh, the some of the situations that they have been through. But they carried on anyway, regardless of how confident they 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 no no longer felt. Mm. And that's the crucial part, really, is the, yeah, the carrying on. on. Yes, crack on with crack it. Crack on. I absolutely love it. Whenever I hear you in like PMQs or whenever you stand up, and you're like, crack on. Crack on. <laughs> I know, mean worthy. <laughs> and my, uh, my final question is, as someone who speaks truth to power on a, a, a nearly daily basis, what is your number one piece of advice for people who want to make change? It's funny, in the book I asked each six people to give a piece of advice and they all said something different, which yeah. I was pleased about because I thought, oh gosh, it'd be boring if they all say the same well, thing. true. Um, I, my one piece of advice, I hate platitudes, <laughs> but it is genuinely that you can do it. Lots mm. of people sit around um, and are waiting for somebody else Mm. But everybody's doing that. Everybody's waiting for somebody yeah. else to do something so that they can join in even. It's not even it's not as passive as just waiting for someone else to sort out your crap. People are often waiting around and are upset about things. Mm. Um but they feel that they need somebody else. But every the suffrage movement, the trade union movement, the labor rights movement, the civil rights movement, they all started because somebody was like should we have a meeting? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, like, we, we think of that I have a dream speech, but that was, like, you know, absolutely no doubt about it, a tiny room around a wooden table in the back of some church in Alabama <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. It was just two people who got together and said, I think maybe we need to, like, get a group together. And, you know, we play it across the world now mm. as sort of globally standing up for what is right. But it does start with just somebody saying... I'm not that keen on this. Should we just maybe have a meeting to sort it out? Yeah. And it doesn't need to be any more dramatic than that. Yeah. It is as simple as that. I love that. <laughs> 
I love the idea of them like in the back room of a I know. Like a back w. room of like a Baptist church. <laughs> yeah. Like in a fusty room where they've had to like pull up the piano stool because there wasn't enough chairs. That. that is the beginning of absolutely every single revolution I have ever been part of yeah. started in somebody's round someone's kitchen table. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. That's it's been wonderful. It's my pleasure. If you liked this episode of History Becomes Her, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you have suggestions of history-making women we should feature on our podcast, or you simply want to get in touch, find us on Twitter at HBHpod. And you can find me on Twitter at RVT9. History Becomes Her is a mashable podcast created by Rachel Thompson and Maria Demenzi. Our artwork is by Vicky Lita. Our music was produced by Christiane Straker. Special thanks to Shannon Canellan and Nikolai Nikolov. And why not check out our sister podcast, Fiction Predictions? Thank you so much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. AdWanted UK is the provider of single source media data for agencies, media owners, brands, and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering called The Media Leader, we can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader from Adwanted UK.